This is the final episode of season three. I know, where's the time gone? I've learned so much and been so inspired. I hope you feel the same. And I think this episode is a great capstone to the season. My guest today is Jonathan Fields, who you might know as the Good Life Guy, who delivers insight that spark purpose, possibility, and potential. I think Jonathan and I are kindred spirits, as he too is on a decades-long quest to discover what makes people truly come alive. Jonathan's list of accomplishments and accolades is long, so hold on here. (laughs) He is an award-winning author, Webby-nominated producer, business innovator, and host of one of the world's top podcasts, Good Life Project, of which I'm a big fan. But you don't have to take just my word for it. The Wall Street Journal named Good Life Project one of the top self-development podcasts, and Apple featured it on stage during their legendary annual product event. Jonathan is featured widely in the media, including the New York Times, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, CNN, The Guardian, O Magazine, Self, Allure, Outside, Elle, Vogue, Fitness, and thousands of other outlets. In addition to writing award-winning best-selling books like Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive, and How to Live a Good Life, and Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance, Jonathan has also founded several companies with a focus on maximizing human potential. The most recent is Spark Endeavors, where he is the chief architect and driving force behind the world's first purpose, engagement, and flow archetypes, the Sparkotypes. This powerful tool has been tapped by over half a million individuals and organizations, generating a rapidly growing global data set and insight-based solution to help transform how we work live and lead. This episode is jam-packed. So first we discuss how being a quote-unquote maker, which is his sparkotype, and a natural creator from a young age defined the path of his career. We'd, uh, you know, I'd beg my parents to take the old Chevy Blazer down to the dump on a Sunday morning after everyone had like left their big stuff there. And we'd throw in bike parts and we'd bring them back home and I'd take some duct tape and just start to cobble everything together and make these Franken-bikes and ride them around the neighborhood. Jonathan also talks about the moment he knew that he had to make a huge career pivot and explore new adventures after a very successful first start to his career was then disrupted by the sobering tragedy of 9-11. But I knew at that moment that this was not the right path for me. He walks us through taking calculated risks, selling two companies, and being humble enough to move on from things that are no longer serving us. Jonathan tells us about writing his first book and how he manages what some might call bad timing. (laughs) It seems to follow him around. To end the episode, Jonathan talks us through his newest book, Sparked, and the Sparkotypes. I think mine fits me to a T. So let's get started. So Jonathan Fields, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. I have been a big fan of yours. I am a regular listener of your podcast. In fact, I'm deep in the Rolodex now. I just recently, let's see if I can remember. I just listened to your episodes with Adam Grant, who I'm a huge fan of, and Jada De Laurentiis, who I used to watch on the Food Network every Saturday when I was still living in the States. Uh, so I'm, I'm deep in the, ar- <laughs> in the archives, um, but I really enjoy that. So thank you for being a guest on mine. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm excited. 
So on this podcast, we like to start at the very, very beginning. I'm curious what a young Jonathan thought he was going to be when he grew up. And then, um, I know that your studies took you on one journey, a plan, a journey, and then we pivoted from there, but let's start in the very beginning. What did young Jonathan think he was going to be? Ooh, um, it probably depended on the minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was somebody who was not given a lot of guardrails in terms of expectations about what I should be, which I think was a really big blessing. Um, you know, I was a kid who was out wandering, trying a million different things. But the um, the really early through line for me is I have for as long as I can remember, I've always just loved to make stuff. I've loved to work with my hands. The, the actual physical act of creation has motivated me in a large way, um, especially earlier in life. I mean, I was the kid where on a weekend, I grew up in a, in a water town outside of New York City. And there was like the old school town dump that you would see and, you know, in movies and We'd, uh, you know, I'd beg my parents to take the old Chevy Blazer down to the dump on a Sunday morning after everyone had like left their big stuff there. And we'd throw in bike parts and we'd bring them back home and I'd take some duct tape and just start to cobble everything together and make these Franken bikes and ride them around the neighborhood until they uh, you know, inevitably imploded and I injured myself and came back crying. And then I would like start over the next week and <laughs> come back and do it again. But I was always building stuff, you know, from the earliest, earliest time I can remember, whether it was that, whether it was forts, whether it was renovating or helping renovate houses, you know, as I got a little bit older, I I made my walking around money in high school, painting album covers on jean jackets back in the day when some of the best art around was album covers, Um, totally self-taught, you know, I learned how to, how to paint myself when um, actually my grandfather past. And I had no idea that he at some point in his life was interested in painting. So going through his stuff, we found this old paint set and it was like this old wooden box with palettes and, and just old paints and, and brushes. And I just would steal away in the corner of our basement and start playing and see what happened. And eventually I was like, Ooh, there's, there's some, there's a way this makes me feel which which would make hours and hours pass in the blink of an eye. And uh, I kind of couldn't get enough of it. So at, you know, I, I always knew I would be making things. I had no idea what form or shape that would take. For a hot minute, I think I thought I would be uh, an architect also. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in fact, I started studying 3D drawing and perspective drawing and stuff like this. But then I think I realized that... Um, I wasn't down for the level of school and internship that that, that <laughs> field required, which is really, really long. It's sort of like the, uh, the you know, the, the, the building equivalent of a medical school. Um, it's a lot of stuff, but, um, yeah, but that, that impulse, that fundamental impulse has always been a part of me. It's woven through everything that I've done for my entire life. That is fascinating. It gives me an early indicator of what your sparkotype might be, which we'll come back to. <laughs> um, but I, I relate to that. I, I, it sounds like a lovely childhood where you, I love that you didn't have very many guardrails. I had a lot of guardrails in the mm. most loving possible definition of that. Um, it was very clear expectations of me going young when I was young, but, um, I really, really relate to that creative exploration that you were able to have. I definitely had that. My mother's an artist. She's an oil painter. She paints these beautiful landscapes. She learned it from both of her parents who were full-time farmers, but that's what they did um, in their pastimes. At the end of the day, they they would all paint together. And so that creative expression, I think is so beautiful. I am this weird blend of my parents. My dad's very analytical. He was first a fighter pilot in the air force. And then second career was uh, as a lawyer. And then my mom is this very 
amazing, emotionally intelligent artist and creator and gatherer of people. So I have these dual sides of my personality that have blended through their influences. So that's why I, I really found your book fascinating, which again, I'll come back yeah. to. But and, and you and I actually share that in common, oh. right, which I didn't realize. So my mom was an artist when I was growing up. She was a potter. Um, oh, wow. And she was kind of bohemian. And my dad was, a, he had one job his entire life. He was a professor. And he researched um, human cognition, learning process, and ran a lab. So I had like the wow. same thing. But one, one side is fiercely analytical. Yep. And, like, show me the data and, and logic and systems. And, and the other side is sort of like, I don't care about any of that. Just like, can we make awesome stuff that makes you feel something? <laughs> wow. Isn't that amazing to have these two, this yin yang that are the two sides of this coin of the human that we eventually have become or am becoming. I'm still a work in progress. <laughs> That's amazing. So what was your school experience like? I was definitely leaning towards the analytical, like my dad's side of things. Um, I wouldn't say I enjoyed school, but I took it so seriously, which is probably why I didn't enjoy it as much as I otherwise would have. Cause I love learning. I, I am an insatiable reader. I'm curious, but school, I took way too seriously. How did, how did you experience that? So, so <sighs> Undergrad, um, I did not take seriously at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I went to a state university in New York, um, and it was a great school, but I had no interest in studying. Um, I, I think I calculated by the time I hit my senior year, I had attended something like 25% of the classes. Um, wow. I, I was a terrible student. You know, like I graduated <laughs> with a C plus or something like that. But the, one of the reasons for that was that um, I also have this lifelong love of music. It's it's in my bones. I played music a lot as a kid, and then I fell in love with you know just any kind of music. And uh, a similar Jones for entrepreneurship. One of the things I love to build is companies. Um, so in college, I started blending the two. I started as a as a DJ at parties, and then actually partnered with somebody else, and we built this. Um, DJ, mobile DJ and sound and lighting company where we were out, you know, with our team at clubs and parties and with huge stacks of equipment. And I would spend pretty much, you know, every Thursday, Friday and Saturday night working behind the tables, just spinning and creating these environments until three, four in the morning. So I, you know, I, I wasn't waking up until pretty late <laughs> in the day. Um, and that in fact was, was the first business we sold. Um, but so I barely attended class until I hit my senior year. And I realized, wow, I've, I've really wasted a lot of opportunity here. And I also realized that I was way short of the credits I needed to graduate. So uh -huh. I doubled down and took massive, massive loads my senior year and did really, really well academically. So I graduated, took a couple of years off and then um, was working and traveling. I went back to law school, but this time when I went to law school, I went there with a fire in my belly. You know, mm -hmm. I was really curious. I kind of said to myself, all right, I know how to build things. I know how to make companies. I know how to, I have this impulse and I know how to follow it. But I was really curious what I was actually capable of intellectually, because I knew that I had not really tested that in any meaningful way in undergrad. So I was kind of exploring what, you know, if I was going to go to grad school, what would that look like? Um, and I landed in law school, which, which, um, confounds most of my friends because it seems like a really weird direction. And it was a bit of a, a, an, an odd left turn for me. Um, but what I figured was I had no idea if I would practice afterward, but I had a feeling it would teach me how to think and how to write and how to speak in a way that would be valuable no mm. matter what I did. 
So when I showed up in law school, I was all in. I was the absolute nerd that just, you know, like locked myself to the table in the library and never left and was massively heads down studying. And when I applied myself in that way, I ended up um, knock on wood and like working really hard um, and graduating very well in my class and doing all the things that you're supposed to do if you're going to perform at the highest levels in law school. And that gave me a lot of opportunity in the field when I came out of it. So it was like it completely reversed the experience. I think it's amazing because your undergrad experience was really about following your passions, being that natural creator. Sounds very entrepreneurial, which you return to after law school. And then you do this experiment with yourself, which is really about testing the limits of your capabilities. If you fully applied yourself, just how far would that take you? I'm sure in those moments, and maybe to your parents especially, it felt kind of disjointed, these two experiences, but I can absolutely see the wisdom in it and what you're doing now, where you're really maximizing those two skill sets, the, the, the creative, like following your passion side of entrepreneurialism and doing things that are differently than anyone else, and then knowing how to communicate that, get people on board, be seen as a leader, uh, gather a team. So did you practice it all after law school or did you go immediately back to your entrepreneurial roots? Yeah, no, I practiced for the better part of five years, I guess. Um, I came out of law school and I had a deep fascination with financial markets, um, security, stocks and bonds. And so I ended up at the Securities and Exchange Commission, this giant federal government you know, agency. And our job, I worked in the New York office, which was the enforcement office, so our job was to investigate um, all sorts of things from insider trading, market manipulation. Wow. So I immediately stepped into that world of sort of like really high stakes financial investigations under the cover of secrecy. I was that weirdo where my friends would ask me what I did and I told I could give them my title, but I couldn't tell them anything that I was actually doing on a day-to-day basis yeah. because it could potentially affect you know like millions of people's lives and billions and billions of dollars. So I was that person who was like, sorry, I can't tell you. Um, And they're always like, dude, you were just not that important. (laughs) (laughs) Get over yourself. Yeah, no, I relate to that. It's a weird moment, especially when you're young, just out of, you know, school and in your first serious job. Ditto. I couldn't say what I was working on at Amazon. Definitely not at Google because all of that stuff, even saying what city I was, I was just in could give away something. So it is an awkward moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. Um, but the work was interesting, you know, and, um, and from there I did, when you, when you, when you do that, you sort of, you signed up for a certain commitment. And then, mm-hmm. um, I bounced from there into, uh, one of the giant law firms in New York city and it kind of flipped sides where we were doing deals mm-hmm. and representing private equity funds and doing mergers and acquisitions. Um, but that didn't last very long. You know, I, I was there for about a year, but about three weeks into that stint, um, we were on a deal and my it was one of those absolutely brutal experiences where you work nonstop you barely ever go home um yeah. the stress is is relentless the stakes are extraordinarily high i mean i remember we were raising money in a foreign country and they were about to change the foreign investment laws and if we didn't hit the deadline if we were literally an hour late everything crashed and burned nothing was going to be possible Wow. So we have multiple teams, you know, like living at printers back in the day when that's what you did. And yep. we finally hit the button on that deal. And I had, as the deal progressed, I realized there was something wrong with my body. Um, I had this pain that started to emerge from the center of my body that became eventually over days crippling, but I didn't understand everyone else was in this altered reality space. 
I was doubled over. I knew the stakes were high. So I just kept pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when, when we you know pushed the deal through, I went home. Um, everything gets a little blurry from there. I either slept no. or passed out for a few hours, ended up in, um, in the hospital within 24 hours and uh, an emergency surgery when my immune system effectively shut down and this massive um, infection abscess blossomed in the middle of my body, ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in. <gasps> and um, thankfully, you know, the surgery was successful. I recovered from it, but I knew at that moment that this was not the right path for me, at least the way that I was practicing. I knew I was on my way out mm. and I spent, I, I went back to the firm eventually, you know, um, but I knew that my work from that moment forward was going to be, how do I step out of this in a way where I'm, I feel like I'm comfortable. I can explore the next uh, adventures for me um, where I've saved enough money. I've banked enough money so I can kind of cover the gap because I knew it was going to take a huge financial hit because I'd probably step back into the space of entrepreneurship yeah. and start you know, with nothing. Um, and that became my mission after that. That is incredible. I think Unfortunately, so many people can probably relate to that moment, especially when we're in, in these high pressure environments, you feel like you don't have permission to say no. I've unfortunately done more than my share of 18 hour days and high stakes deals and multi-million dollar things on the line. It's really, you don't feel like you have permission to be human. Um, but the only way that we have longevity is when we start to draw those parameters and, um, recognizing that the job, the way it was organized, wasn't conducive to that must've been terrifying, but also thrilling to get that, a sense of control back, even though entrepreneurism is, <laughs> as I'm realizing myself, um, this is now, um, I just had my thir- three year anniversary last week of leaving Google after 12 years. Um, it's yeah, some things are in my control and some things are not, which is part of being an entrepreneur, but now hearing your experience. And I think that can inspire so many people of really having an honest conversation with yourself about what you can and cannot tolerate in the long term is really important. But now your early entrepreneurial journey makes perfect sense to me because then you moved into concentrating on wellness and health and things that also protected your physical strength while satisfying that incredible drive that you have naturally. Can you walk us through those early stages? Cause you yeah. sold two companies after that. So you were a very successful entrepreneur within the wellness space. Yeah. So, um, so I've, I've always, when I was a kid, I was also a gymnast. I was a competitive gymnast for the you know, first 20 years of my life. Um, so I've always had this deep fascination with um, somatics, with mind, body, with physical movement, with how, how the feedback mechanism between the mind and the body works and with human potential. So um, I, when I started making a list of things that I thought I might bounce to from my law career, you know, yeah. which is what I was doing. If you, if you had walked by my office and seen me scribbling madly on a legal pad back then and smiling, it wasn't because I was getting my work done. It was because <laughs> I was, I was writing down my dreams for the next evolution. Yeah. And so I went from there and my first step out, I, I realized I wanted to get into the fitness industry to understand what was happening. So um, my first step out was actually talking my way into a, a job as a personal trainer in this little studio on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, making 12 bucks an hour. And um, which was, you know, an an interesting thing for me to handle on an identity level and an ego level. Because here I'm going from one of the biggest, most prestigious law firms in the world, making a really nice six-figure income to wearing running shoes, tights, and beat up old t-shirts and making 12 bucks an hour. And it took me a minute to really grapple with that shift in identity. And 
you know, because, you know, there was a tendency for people from the outside in to look at me and say, oh, what a shame. You couldn't handle it, mm. you know, rather than understanding, no, there's actually an intentional process going on yep. here. And I, you know, I, I wanted to actually step into this new industry at the most fundamental point of service. So I could understand the social dynamic and really what was working, what wasn't working, understand the culture, understand the environment so that I could re-envision. I, I knew this was going to lead to my own mousetrap eventually. And I wanted to understand how to do it better. So I did that um, for about six months. And then I, I was like, you know, I'm seeing what I want to do here. Um, so I moved on. I opened my first fitness facility um, and then grew that for about two and a half years. I, you know, like every entrepreneur, I was both the, the founder and CEO and the janitor and the fitness instructor and the personal trainer and like whoever didn't show up on any given day. You wore that, that hat. That, that was my job. And, <laughs> you know, so like you said, there's, a, there's the fantasy of entrepreneurship of like, oh, I have total control and it's going to be amazing. And the reality, especially in the early days is it is brutally hard, but at least you know why you're doing it. You know, you know yeah. that you have, that there's a reason that you, you're showing up every morning, that it's aligned with something that really matters to you. And for me, the most amazing thing about it was you get to pick the people you surround yourself with. Mm. And that makes the whole experience just a completely different thing. So I did that. Um, after about two and a half years, I was very fortunate to sell that business. Um, and um, and then I, I was scanning the horizon and trying to figure out, okay, so what's my next move here? We were living in Hell's Kitchen in New York. Um, I was married. We had a new home and a three-month-old baby. I got really fascinated in the yoga world. Um, and I realized that a lot of folks like me who had sort of come from more of a business background up to that point were a little bit terrified to step into the typical yoga studio. And this was back in the day where yoga is not what it is now. Um, <laughs> mo most people in New York City could not pronounce the name of the studio they went to if they went to one at all. So <laughs> I kind of said, let's, let's see if I can create something that preserves the power of the practice, but is more accessible to a wider range of people. So I signed a six-year lease for a floor in a building in New York City um, for what I hoped would become one of the premier yoga centers in New York. I signed that lease the day before 9-11 in New York. So I woke wow. up the next morning and, you know, it was devastating, you know, devastating on every imaginable level. Yeah. You know, most immediately, you know, my wife and I were just asking, who, do, who did we know yeah. who was in the towers? Because nobody who was a New Yorker at that point, you know, got out without knowing somebody. Um, and then, of course, are, are we, are we going to move forward? I mean, am I literally going to launch a business married with a home and a three-month-old baby into this sea of pain. Um, and it was a struggle for a little bit, but an experience we had actually one, one day, the day or two um, after visiting with a friend of ours who actually lost her husband in mm. that experience really kind of awakened in me this notion that, no, this is, life is short. You know, we have one pass through. Nobody plans to, to go to work one day and not come home, but it happens. And if you know, the moment that we've all been going through now in the last 18 months or so has, I think, reminded us of that again. So we moved, we moved forward with it and opened uh, about eight weeks later, completely different energy, you know, instead of like rock star energy and health club brought to a yoga studio and all sorts of, yeah. you know, it was a much more contemplative and soulful and the many of the aid workers um, who are being staged for uh, helping out 
were actually um, two avenue blocks down from us in the city on one of the piers. So we sent people down there and said, just come, just wow. come, breathe, move, relax, cry, whatever you need to do. And it's like, don't pay us, just show up. And it became this really quickly, it became this place of community, of healing, of movement, of um, just grace, where you could come and just feel whatever you need to feel. And it was an amazing thing. And we grew as a community really quickly. We grew as a business, um, thankfully, as a side effect of that. Um, and I, I <clears throat> similar to my experience in fitness, um, when we started out, there were only two of us. So magically, I was one of the yoga teachers, <laughs> <laughs> um, having probably no business teaching. But that was back in the day where I literally bought the top 10 selling yoga videos. Yep. I memorized the routines of all of them. <laughs> Love and that. on any given day, I would show up and teach, you know, like one day I'm teaching this rock star persons. And then the next day <laughs> until eventually I, I like went and studied more and then got certified and did all this stuff. But, um, and over the years, it grew into this just beautiful, vibrant community, you know, with thousands of people from all over the world and dozens of teachers. And we ended up training so many teachers and sending them out into the world. I was on the floor for seven years teaching and it was just this stunning, stunning experience in my life. And um, after about seven years, as pretty much always happens with me, once things start to really become stable um, and systematized mm. and processes, the, the entrepreneur's impulse in me kind of says, hmm. You get a little itchy. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's next? So, um, so I was able to, because it was a, you know, a, not just a beautiful community, but a business that was doing very well also, I was able to exit that. Um, and, and I did that at the same time that I, I sold my first book. Um, and I kind of knew that I had started to develop this love of writing um, and communicating and language on the side. And I want to really lean into that. So I started working on that book. Um, I, I stepped out of the yoga. Um, it, it was interesting. The, the last class that I took there, people didn't know it was my last class. And um, until I brought them up out of Shavasana and then shared with them what mm. you know was going on. And I will, to this day, I will never remember those final moments of that class and just the energy in that room. Um, but wow. it was also, I knew it was right. I knew, you know, it was time to just hand over the keys and I walked out and I was good with that decision. Um, you know, and I also knew that the community was in beautiful hands. It had a wonderful steward who would carry on with it and amazing, you know, teachers who were going to take great care of, of everyone. So I felt good about the transition. Um, and that launched me into the world of books and media and speaking and all the stuff that I've been doing really for the last decade. This is incredible. I knew you were my kind of person. Uh, you have just highlighted so many things that we talk about here on this podcast. And, and I highlight in my book because I just want to point out for our regular listeners, they're going to be hearing some patterns that, that come up over and over again with the super performers um, interviewed on this podcast. Um, I hear the pattern of taking calculated risks and being humble enough to let go of something that's no longer serving you. You've learned from it, what you can move on and take a risk on yourself. I hear you doing that thought work in your law office. The only time you smiled while you were there was because you were realigning yourself with your values and your mission. And then you took a bet on yourself. You were humble enough to go from this, 
very comfortable salary and corner office and all those comforts um, and prestige and being able to brag and your parents being really proud and then going in being humble and wearing all the hats. That really reminds me of the Jeff Bezos story, actually, because he was a hedge fund manager in New York, left all of that behind. He was very, very successful. He had no reason to leave. And was packing boxes on his hands and knees alone in his garage, you know, the next week on the other side of the country, not knowing his soul. And so that kind of like risk-taking of something so valuable line that it pulls you, it just forces you to take a risk. And the fact that you, I, I do think that there's this beautiful pattern in, in crises, whether it's a life disruption or a global pandemic or something, when we can find our superpower of using our strengths and our passions to serve others, I think it's such a beautiful story for you to have shared that in such a meaningful way of not just focusing on the business model, but how can I serve my community that's really suffering right now? And and, uh, this is a crazy full circle moment because we're just days away from the 20th anniversary of that day. And um, it still feels really raw when I see those things again. And I'm not a New Yorker, um, but it's very, very personal. So how that led to this next step of your journey, which I'm excited to explore now. Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work-life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. Now at this 20-year marker, I find all of us are kind of reflective and going back to, I mean, of course, we all remember, this is our moon landing, right? We all know where we were when we heard the news. Is is that bringing you back to a period of reflection? It does. Yeah, it does every year. Um, So I had um, a couple days after 9-11. So when 9-11 happened in New York City, the... um, there was sort of a line uh, on Canal Street, which became this dividing line. Like one was basically a, a, a military zone and then yeah. above it was devastation, but people were trying to sort of like figure things out and and move on and not move on, but just, you know, open their mm-hmm. eyes and live their day. So I walked down to that line one day and had a friend of mine who lived down below it, like literally two blocks from the World Trade Center. And he came up and met me and, and walked me past all the um, the security. That was the only way he could get in. And we're walking around and we just wanted to see if we could help out in some way, shape, or form. We figured, you know, we would yeah. hand out bottles or something like that. And we, we were approached by an Army National Guard captain. And he said, hey, do you want to help? We were like, yeah. And we had no idea what was about to happen. So he starts walking us through checkpoints, um, starts giving us more equipment. And we're kind of navigating, meandering what was left of streets just covered in rubble. 
and we turn a corner and we're literally just staring at what was you know, like back then they called the pile. Yeah. Um, and, and, and me knowing that I had uh, a friend who was you know, like in there somewhere too. Um, and we were stationed right on a corner of this blown out fast food restaurant. And our job was just to hand out supplies to all of the people who were working there. You could, you know, e even with equipment that you were wearing, you could barely breathe. You could barely see. It was so smoky and acrid and just, we were working for a couple of hours. Um, and at one point, you know, they said, Hey, there's, there's a gas leak, everyone out fast and everyone runs. And then they, we come back in and then we hear this loud siren and we're, we're, we're kind of looking around my buddy and I were like, what is that? And then we see everyone literally running for their lives in any direction that was not um, wow. the rubble. So we just start running. We have no idea why we're running, but we're just like, okay. So like, apparently like we need to be away from here and we're running, running, running. We get probably quarter mile away and, and everyone starts to kind of slow down and look back. And then um, we're asking what happened, what happened, what happened? And people are saying, well, one of the remaining buildings, um, it looked like the facade might be starting to twist off and fall back down into um, the rubble. So they need to clear mm. everyone really quickly. And eventually we were, we were there for a little bit and the, the, um, the army national guard captain comes and finds us again. He says, Hey, you know, if you're open to it, you know, we're going back in. And I looked at my friend and my friend, I had a three month old baby. My friend's wife was expecting, um, we looked at ourselves and we're like, you know what? Um, with a certain amount of shame, um, we're, no, we're not in actually, this is, this is actually not what we thought we were signing up for. And we have so much gratitude and admiration for the work that, that, um, all these people are doing, um, and we're helping, you know, happy to support in so many different ways, but we were terrified for our lives in that moment in time. And we decided we wanted to support in other ways. And we sort of, mm. um, so we, 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 and actually they ended up not going back in, um, because it was, it was a little too dangerous at that moment in time. So we ended up weaving our way all the way down to the water and then all the way up the Upper East Side and then back over, um, just to get clear and to, um, find our way back to our homes. But, um, you know, the, that day, those days, those weeks, um, have, will, will be there with me indelibly for my life. And yeah, every, every year when, when this time comes, it's like, it's just beneath the surface, you know, I can smell it. Um, yeah. and, and I will always remember where I was, but also I always remember being literally there, yeah. um, and, and seeing people, um, doing this work um and seeing the devastation so when i when i think about it 20 years later um yeah i guess the question that i keep coming back to is what have we learned mm. um and on, in some ways i think we've learned a ton and in other ways i think we're still right there yeah i think oh, thank you for sharing that very personal account of what that was like for you being being there literally at the epicenter of what was happening and i think that's such a beautiful accounting that really paints a vivid picture of the sacrifices made there that day by those who, who were in danger, those who perished, those who serve, and also highlighting understanding how you yourself could be best be of service and, and having that moment of realizing that we have one wild and precious life and uh, choosing how you were going to show up for your family and prioritizing that, and then also serve this community of first responders in such a meaningful way. 
um, I, we could talk for a long time about this <laughs> because I think, I mean, there's just such a weird full circle right now as we're watching the Afghanistan disaster and, and um, yeah, asking ourselves, what are we contributing as a society? How can we make this world an actual better place? And what responsibilities do we each individually need to take on or want to take on um, and have some honest conversations with ourselves about contributing in meaningful ways. Um, it is not a diversion or a strange segue for me to then go into your thought leadership, because I think this is a natural extension of that deeply emotional experience you must have had that day of thinking about centering your life's work about giving back and serving and, and guiding people through this crazy experience, which it is to be human on this planet. I'm curious. So it sounds to me like your first book came naturally flowing out of this experience. Is that accurate? I'm asking selfishly as a first time author, because mine was, um, a laborious procedure, but one built, um, born out of passion for, for my message. I'm curious how that first author experience came to be and what that was like. And now you're on your fourth book, which I definitely want to talk about. Cause I've got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of questions around that as well, but how did you, how was that transition into the thought leadership and being an author? Yeah, you know, so the first book came in, let's see, we I think sold it at the end of 2007. I wrote it in 2008 and it came out in 2009. And I was effectively writing a book that was um, inviting people to quit their jobs to do what they love at a time which was then, it came out in the first week of 2009, which was at that moment, the single worst week in the economy um, since the Great Depression. <laughs> wow. You have not timing good, on these not, things, don't that you? That was not good timing. It was <laughs> like, okay, so how do we, tens of millions of people are losing their jobs, you know, and I'm saying, quit your job and do what you love. And um, I've kind of grown a bit since then. And it wasn't entirely that message, you know, but, um, you know, writing that book, I was, I was still, um, so this was 2008 um, while I was writing. So but but you're you're right just to link it back um 911 did something to me it flipped a switch mm. um it really made me wake up and say like 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 i said we have one pass through um and to the extent that we have the agency and the opportunity and the privilege and the resources and whatever it is that we can leverage to try and live as much of the life in a way that feels meaningful and alive as we can then I'd love to be a part of both doing that myself and seeing if we can create things that would help others do it. So the book and everything that I've written is sort of like this perpetual extension. It's a constant outflow of that initial moment, I think. Um, but writing the first book was, you know, I I had been dabbling and I had been playing and I had learned how to write as a marketer for you know business as an entrepreneur because I couldn't afford to pay people to do the writing on the level I wanted. But writing a full-length book as you know, like a whole different um, thing. Yes. <laughs> and um, so writing that was uh, it, it was interesting also in that the publishing industry is constantly changing and strange, as I'm sure you experienced with your own book. Um, yeah. The you know we sold that book to an imprint of Random House. Um, my editor, who was also ran the imprint, said, "Go ahead. We agreed on what the topic was." Um, go ahead and write the book. Um, you don't have to check in with me, just write the manuscript and then give it to me on this deadline. I wrote the manuscript two weeks before the deadline. Uh, I get a call from my agent and who says, hey, have you heard about um, your editor? I'm like, no, what? The Random House shuttered the imprint and um, they're no longer there. <gasps> and I was like, uh, uh, what? And then she said, 
but it's okay because they're like taking that they love you they love the book and they're taking it into like the bigger you know like house and just wow. reassigning you a different and i was like you you could have led with that <laughs> <laughs> It's like, at least like, you know, give me a little hope first, you know, like good news, bad news, but good news. Okay. So first the bad news, but there's good news. Like it's coming. I promise. Um, wow. So, so I ended up, you know, a different imprint and, and a different editor and all sorts of stuff. And then we rewrite the book to suit the new editor's vision of it. And then, yeah. yeah and then it comes out at a moment in time where the entire um, house shut down for two weeks. They went black and nobody knew if publishing was coming back. I have very weird timing with a lot of yes, things. Yes, you do. <laughs> you have a pattern. I do. Um, and uh, but but the experience it it lit a fire. You know, I I have this deep passion for for um, language. You know, the same way that I loved to just cobble together physical items when I was a kid. I found I love to cobble together words and thoughts mm. and rhythms and cadences as a grown up and and I never lost that love of physical creation but now I have this other adjunct that I get to do alongside it and a lot of the creative process can happen literally between my ears um so it was that book definitely it sort of it let me know okay so this is not just like your one book that you're going to write and then tap out this this is the beginning of something that will very likely last for your entire life I definitely see that now um, in looking at the collection of all your works. I see this common thread that pulls them so beautifully together. And I think your uh, most recent book, your fourth book, Sparked, um, is such a beautiful highlight of the elements that, that have been um, evolving and developing and, and these themes that were really at the root of, of so much of your message before. So I would be remiss if we don't deep dive into your most current work, because I do think this brings out so many of the themes you've, you've been uh, putting out into the world for so long. So uh, it's called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. I love this message. I list, first heard you introduce this book on someone else's podcast. To be honest, I can't remember which one. And I immediately got the book and did my own Sparkotype evaluation. I am a big fan of these types of assessments because I love being aware of my strengths and my weaknesses, my natural tendencies, and how to maximize those because I'm always trying to supercharge my performance and that A-plus type personality. So I will share with you, which I always feel like is kind of showing, <laughs> revealing being myself, but I imagine people do this to you all the time. So I'm an advisor, which is very mm -hmm. consistent with other assessments that I've got. Um, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFJA, which is also titled advisor. My shadow um, sparkotype, sparkotype is Maven and my anti is maker. So hopefully that gives you a very nice quick peek into who you're talking to right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, to, so to deconstruct that a little bit for, for those listening. So, um, so the primary is basically your strongest impulse for work that gives you this feeling of coming alive. Um, but I want to deconstruct that a little bit also. Because there are idea. 10 sparkotypes, right? Yeah, there, yes. there are 10 different sparkotypes. But that word coming alive can be a little bit gray, a little bit nebulous. So let's actually, when I talk about that, I'm talking about the the sort of the, the overlap or the sweet spot between five different states. So it's the experience of meaning. So the feeling like what you're doing actually matters. Like it really means something to you, maybe to others, to the world. Mm. The feeling of flow, like you can just absorb yourself in this thing. You lose a sense of time, even a sense of your own individuality. It's um, kind of this really blissed out state where it's almost beyond 
emotion. Um, and what we know from research also is that state drops you into a place of hypercognition, hypercreativity, hyperawareness, where you can kind of access your fullest potential. It's also uh, the overlap between um, excitement and energy what the corporate world would call engagement these days, where you, you wake up in the morning, you actually want to work hard and you want to go do this thing and it energizes you. The two other things are what I would call expressed potential. You feel like you're showing up and you're not holding anything back. Nothing is being stifled. And the last thing is, is purpose. And that's two different levels, a, an immediate sense of purpose. Like I know what I'm working towards and that thing matters to me, but then more broadly, just a sense of purpose in life. Um, and actually that, you know, we have some really interesting data that shows that when you do, the more you do the work of your spark type, the more you feel all of these five things, or you report feeling all these five things, the purpose in life thing was the biggest surprise for us. I'm, I'm mm. thrilled about it because this is really focused on work, but what we, it looks like is that you work is such a big part of your life that when you do work that is aligned with this impulse, this innate impulse it gives you this broader sense of purpose in life, which is really cool to understand. It's not the only thing that gives you a sense of purpose in life, but it can be a really significant contributor. So for you, if you say, okay, so my primary is the advisor, that is your strongest impulse, which is all about, it's guiding people through a process, people or groups or audiences, whoever it may be, through some process of meaningful growth. Um, it's about creating a container of safety, and trust, it's a very relational impulse. You thrive not just on knowing that the person has grown in a, in a particular way and checked off a box at the end. It's the, it's the nature of the relationship, the dynamic all along the way that's really nourishing for you. In fact, I would venture to say, and tell me this is true, if you've been in an experience where you're sort of, you, you are playing that guiding or mentoring or coaching or leading role and, and you, you, you know, the person or the group actually gets to that place, but along the way, you really haven't felt all that connected to them, that it's not nearly as satisfying as you wanted it to be. Is, does that ring true to you or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my entire professional career has been in the sweet spot. So it's so validating to hear that this is a strength of mine. Um, but yeah, that was the role I had with Jeff Bezos that I have with Marissa Meyer when I first joined Google and then with Eric Schmidt for nine and a half of the 12 years I worked there now as an advisor and with consulting clients all around the world, this is the role I play, but you're absolutely right. The few clients, I, I was very lucky. I had deep connections and that's the only way I could be effective with such super performers. I had deep personal connections with them at their side, 18 hours a day for, for a few decades. But now when I'm having to do it remote, that was an interesting challenge for me when I had to pivot my consulting to being remote and over Zoom, I missed that connection. And then those of my clients who had really good success immediately after we started working together, but I didn't feel that connection of purpose in my work. That was actually something I realized was a mistake in my early consulting when I wasn't filtering for unified purpose. Am mm -hmm. I as passion aligned in what they're putting into the world as they are? And I found that I could be helpful across many different industries, but I didn't find that same satisfaction and driving consistency in my work if we didn't have that alignment and that connection. So absolutely rings true for me. I yeah, would love to use this as a self-therapy session, but I feel, <laughs> I feel like maybe I should back up and maybe you can describe for, so I love the purpose behind, behind finding these, understanding your strengths so that you can then use that to find satisfaction and effectiveness in your work. But I'm also wonder if it would be helpful for you to describe how you discovered these 10 different sparkotypes, because 
I know having listened to you describe this from the past, there was a lot of data gathering, a lot of research that went into this, testing the models. How did you come to these types? And then I wonder if you could give us a, a, a quick overview of what those are. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, um, so like every um, citizen scientist who's just fiercely curious about human nature, everything starts as a hunch and a lot of observation. Mm. You know, having worked with a lot of different people, um, grown my own businesses, um, spent a lot of years now teaching in a lot of different ways. Um, I observed a lot of patterns and now, you know, in the world of media and producing and sitting down for almost 10 years now with some of the most stunning accomplished people in literally every domain of life and learning from them. Um, I started to ask questions, you know, and I've always had this deep fascination of, um, around the question, what should I do with my life? And specifically, how do I find a new work that, that makes me come alive? And I started to wonder, you know, a lot of folks will say, okay, so there's 7.8 million people in the world. There must be 7.8 million wholly unique impulses for work that gives you this feeling because we're all completely unique. And I said, well, you know, I wonder if that's actually, if, if underneath that, mm -hmm. yes, there are 7.8 billion unique expressions of this, of, of a set of impulses. But I wonder if there is actually an identifiable, mappable set of much deeper impulses for effort. Yeah. You know, whether that effort is applied in the domain of the work, the job you get paid for, or a role that you have, maybe a caretaker or a parent or, or a devotion. It's, it's all work to me, you know, it's, and, and work is not a bad word to me. I love work. I love working hard and, and investing effort. So I got curious, is there some sort of mappable set of impulses that are universal across all people? So literally started looking at massive lists of jobs and titles and going through my own experiences and asking what's underneath that, what's underneath that, what's underneath that and deconstructing and deconstructing until I got down to this set of 10 much more almost primal impulses for effort. And then, you know, I started to realize that each one of these impulses also has a fairly identifiable and pretty common set of behaviors, tendencies, and preferences that wrap around them and form archetypes. Um, I call them sparkotypes just because it's kind of a fun way to say the archetype for work that sparks you. Um, and once I, I got there, I started sharing it. I started asking people, does this ring true? Does not? How do we adjust this, this framework that's being developed? And eventually I got to a place where I realized there was something to this and it was really powerful and people were responding in a big way, but I wanted to test it at scale. So we spent um, the better part of a year developing an assessment to serve two purposes. One, to help actually, you know, use it as a, as a scientist and see like, are these ideas real? But also to create a tool that would potentially help people figure what theirs are. So we moved it through beta and uh, you know, more and more people and eventually released it out to the world. And we were blown away by the response to this. At, you know, to date, well over 500,000 people have completed it. We're sitting on over 25 million data points. Incredible. And, and it's you know, thousands more people every week are, are interacting with this assessment and giving us just stunning insights and data and tremendous amount of validation of the core ideas, much, much, much more nuanced understandings and insights. And with that many people now interacting with the core body of work, now so many, just a, a mountain of stories and use cases that we come back to and can interview people and now bring in more sort of a, you know, qualitative and quantitative approach to figuring out um, these tools and these ideas. And it's been really powerful to, you know, first come up with an idea, 
tease it out on your own, get it to a place where you think, okay, there's something real here, develop an, a, a tool which you can actually use to validate or invalidate the idea. I had no idea, you know, like what was going to happen when we put this thing out into the world. Um, and I had to hold that lightly because if all the data came back and said, eh, not so much, I would have been okay with that and sort of moved on, but it didn't, you know, it came back and said, no, this is real and it's powerful. Um, and then to have, you know, all of the, the follow-on um, data that comes in in a much more powerful, nuanced and story-driven way has been just an incredible, incredible experience. And it's given me the opportunity to interact with so many people um, and also organizations, you know, now we're, working with senior leadership teams who are saying, okay, so how can we, how can we understand these sparkotypes in ourselves yeah. so that we can step into the roles that we're doing from a place that allows us to leverage that innate impulse for work so that motivation kind of becomes a non-issue for us. And then how can we understand what this is in, in the teams that we lead so that we can better empower them to, to do work that is nourishing and makes them come alive. Um, and, and, and allows them to show up as their best selves and feel amazing about what they're doing. So it's been fascinating to see sort of the, the application across so many different domains now. It must be incredibly rewarding and satisfying to see it come alive in those very real case studies. I wonder, do you have a favorite anecdote of a individual career or a company and a leadership team that was really transformed by understanding this concept of these internal drivers that they have? Yeah, there's so many. Um, so... I'll share a maker story because so, so my, there, there are 10 of these spark types. Um, one of them is the maker and the impulse for the maker is to make ideas manifest. It's all about the process of creation. That, that is, as I'm sure everyone's figured out by now, that is my spark type. I can see that. Spark type. <laughs> um, there's a, a, another person who I write about in the chapter in spark, um, who has that same orientation. So his name is Max, uh, Levi Frieder and, he was painting, he had a paintbrush in his hand from the time that he was a little kid. Um, he ends up going to college uh, at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, one of the most, you know, incredible uh, art schools in the world, studies fine art, thinks he's going to be a painter. This, he thinks his life is going to be painting. And, and he's not entirely wrong because this is his impulse. So he gets out of school and he has this summer experience where he gets a job at a summer camp, a sleepaway camp for kids. And he starts to lead these outdoor collaborative art projects for them, where he's bringing all these people together and doing these giant, like large scale collaborative art projects. Something inside of him lights up and says, okay, I love to paint. I love fine art. And he's an extraordinary fine artist, but there's something happening here. He's like, you know, the, the co-creative process, the collaborative process um, is really incredible. So he starts doing more of that. And then he decides that he actually wants to take this and use it as an expressive medium, not just for kids who are going to summer camp in the US, but for populations who would not have any access to art at all. And also many of whom have gone through really tough, traumatic experiences in their lives. So he starts first dropping into different neighborhoods and cities and under-resourced areas in the US. And, and he's having the most incredible experiences. They would get a, you know, a wall in the city and they bring all the local kids together and paint these stunning murals with them. And he's not the lead painter in these things. What he's realizing, he's stepping back and he's creating something even bigger. You know, the painter in him wants to paint, but the maker in him says, oh, 
I'm creating a container that is bringing us all into this place of expression that is stunning and rewarding in so many different levels. That then expands into him dropping into very often war-torn countries and refugee camps and bringing communities together there, not just kids who've gone through the most you know, horrific things, but sometimes people who are on opposite sides of conflict so that they can, who would never ever talk and wouldn't be allowed in the same space together. And they would start to collaboratively work on these giant outdoor things. And they're, they're co-creating art, they're telling their stories. And as they're doing this, they're seeing the humanity in each other. Um, that leads him to launch a foundation called Artolution, which is now um, empowering people all over the world to do this. And then they start training local artists in all these different areas to start to run with it themselves. So they're giving them uh, you know, both a, a place in the community and a way to organize and you know, in some cases an income. Um, so it becomes this beautiful thing that started from this initial impulse as a little kid to paint. You know, and now it's this incredible foundation that is doing stunning work in the world. And the foundation itself has now become, you know, one of Max's central devotions as a maker. What a beautiful, inspiring and perfect encapsulation of this experience of understanding, not, not just stopping the conversation with yourself about what are my talents and what do I like, but really once you find this spark type, you know how you can create a ripple effect larger than yourself by using that um, as a, a conduit through which you can channel those talents and interests and really have a big impact. What an incredible conversation. I, I am so grateful for you for sharing this. We literally are just scratching the surface of everything, all this knowledge and wisdom and inspiration that you've packed into this single book. How can people continue to connect with you? I highly encourage everyone to be an active listener as I am on Good Life your amazing podcast to buy the book sparked and to do the assessment, share with us all the ways that we can connect with you and continue to be part of this learning and journey and all that you have to share. Yeah. Well, well, first, thank you so much. I love this conversation. It's such a pleasure to be able to share ideas and, and to hear your experiences as well. Um, if folks want to learn any more, the, the spark type assessment is freely available online to everyone. That's part of our commitment. Like we want to make accessibility to it um, an important part of our value set. So uh, sparkatype.com, S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. -E. And even if you misspell it, you'll still get there because we own the misspellings too. That's fine. Um, that'll let you get to the assessment. The book Spark is available everywhere, booksellers everywhere. And um, you can find me on the Good Life Project uh, podcast twice a week, just talking to some really in incredible big hearted people. Thank you so much for sharing this, your time with us, your wisdom, and for creating this enormous, enormous ripple effect into the world of helping people really hone their superpowers and put it out into the community. It's really, really inspiring. And it was an honor to have a chat with you today. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Jonathan.